This is Barry Zelma, Zelma on insurance. Today I'd like to talk about the evidence needed to prove fraud. To properly prepare a case of fraud by an insured against an insurer for trial, the adjuster or SIU investigator must understand evidence and that evidence is broken into two major categories, direct and circumstantial. Direct evidence is proof that tends to show the existence of a fact in question without the intervention of the proof of any fact. It includes testimony that tends to prove or disprove a fact in issue directly such as eyewitness testimony or a confession. Sometimes direct evidence may not exist because records have been destroyed in a fire, destroyed by water, stolen, discarded, or eaten by vermin. As important as direct evidence is to the proof of fraud or attempted fraud, courts have noted that it can be difficult to obtain direct evidence of something so internal as the intent to commit fraud. Jurors are therefore free to consider circumstantial evidence and draw reasonable inferences from it. For example, in United States v. Hawkins, a 2019 decision of the Sixth Circuit, circumstantial evidence was sufficient to allow a jury to convict. Courts are often called upon to rule what direct evidence may be admitted and what circumstantial evidence may be admitted. In one case, the government was allowed to introduce tax evidence, the asset transfer evidence, and the salacious acts evidence as direct evidence to prove a crime. In addition, the government was allowed to introduce, under Rule 404, evidence concerning Mr. Brooks, one of the parties, alleged insurance fraud and the stock purchases by Mr. Brooks' family members. This was United States versus Hatfield, a 2010 decision of the Eastern District of New York. A court stated it was mindful that there was no direct evidence that any of the plaintiffs knowingly participated in any insurance fraud scheme or even suspected one. But where a loss is caused by the fraud of a third party, in determining the liability as between two innocent parties, the loss should fall on the one who enabled the fraud to be committed. Although any fraudulent conduct of the assignors might not be properly imputed to plaintiffs. Plaintiffs would be among the primary beneficiaries of the fraud. Circumstantial evidence, on the other hand, is brought to bear when direct evidence does not exist for any reason. Circumstantial evidence must be produced to prove the fraud if you cannot prove it with direct evidence. 
It is direct evidence if a witness sees a jet plane fly across the sky. And it is circumstantial evidence if the witness sees a jet's contrail, but not the jet itself. Circumstantial evidence is all evidence of an indirect nature when the existence of the principal fact is deduced from evidentiary facts by a process of probability reasoning. The investigator takes circumstantial evidence and uses deductive reasoning to reach a conclusion. Circumstantial evidence and the deductions of a professional investigator are often more reliable than direct evidence like eyewitness testimony. Circumstantial evidence is sufficient to establish proof of arson and other criminal activities. Many fraud cases are proved entirely by circumstantial evidence or by a combination of circumstantial evidence and direct evidence, but seldom, seldom by direct evidence alone. Fraudulent intent, the most difficult element to prove in many fraud cases, is usually proved by circumstantial evidence, and necessarily so, because it is impossible to produce direct evidence of the defendant's state of mind, absence of confession, or the testimony of a co-conspirator. In a circumstantial case, the court may instruct the jury that the prosecution of the insurer must exclude all evidence from the facts other than its determination of fraud. If the trier of fact can infer a legitimate rather than fraudulent explanation for a series of events, the insurer's defense or the prosecution will fail. Even if no such instruction is given, the investigator and the adjuster should apply the same standard when preparing a circumstantial case for trial. It is clear the elements of the offense, including intent to defraud and deceive, may be proved by circumstantial evidence. A culpable mental state is nearly always proved by circumstantial evidence. Occasionally, as in the Indiana case of Hicks v. State of Indiana, a 1987 decision, a thief will attempt to defeat a burglary claim by claiming it was part of an insurance fraud scheme. If the victim instigated the crime as part of an insurance fraud, there can be no conviction for burglary. However, adjusters, like the prosecutor in the Hicks case, should be leery of such confessions, as they may often, and usually are, fabricated. An insured should never be accused of fraud based on an accused felon's statement unless independent, innocent witnesses corroborate the felon's charges. In the Hicks case, the court found appropriate cross-examination on the fraud claim and affirmed a 30-year state sentence by stating, quote, During cross-examination, the prosecutor asked Smith if he created the story of insurance fraud scheme on August 14, 1982. Smith responded that he had not, 
and stated that the scheme had been planned prior to August 2, 1982's burglary of the Robbins' home. The prosecutor then offered into evidence State's Exhibit Number 38, a letter, letter written by Smith to the appellant on August 14, 1982 in an attempt to discredit Smith as a witness. Cross-examination is permissible as to the subject matter covered on direct examination, including any matter which tends to elucidate, modify, explain, contradict, or rebut testimony given during direct examination by the witness. In W.L. Lindemann Operating Company v. Strange, a 2008 decision of the Texas Court of Appeal, the court noted that fraud is usually so covert or attendant with such attempts at concealment as to be incapable of proof other than by circumstantial evidence. In a suit against an insured, an insurer can never be too well prepared. In a Utah case, an insurer recognizing that it was not a favored litigant presented over 200 pages of documentation detailing the extent of its damages and the grounds for its summary judgment. The Court of Appeals in Amica Mutual v. Shetler, a 1989 decision, affirmed a summary judgment in favor of the insurer for fraud and awarded compensatory and punitive damages to the insurer. Some guidance is offered by trial courts, which have articulated several factors as indicia of a non-accident or fraud, including one, more than one collision within a short time of the policy's inception, two, cancellation of the policy shortly thereafter for non-payment of premium, Three, similarities among the collisions and interrelationships among the parties. And four, inconsistencies in testimony regarding the circumstances of the subject collision and the identities of the individuals involved. Four classic red flags of auto insurance fraud. Such factors in various combinations have been held to constitute a compelling and persuasive body of circumstantial evidence that the underlying loss resulted from an intentional collision staged for the purpose of insurance fraud. Now there's another type of evidence that sometimes is called into play with fraud cases, and that's called the standard of clear and convincing evidence. The clear and convincing standard is a very difficult and stringent standard to establish. In New Jersey, in the case of Italian Fishermen versus Commercial Union, a 1987 decision, the court refused to accept the clear and convincing evidence standard of proof proposed by the plaintiff in an insurance fraud defense pointing out that proof of fraud by a preponderance of the evidence, that's 50% plus one, which is much easier to establish than clear and convincing evidence, renders the insurance policy void from its inception. As another New Jersey court stated, 
quote, this court has previously addressed the nature of the arson defense and the quality of the evidence necessary to support the defense. The arson defense is most accurately viewed as an allegation that the insured purposely created the loss and therefore should not benefit from it. To succeed on a defense of arson, an insurance company must show by a preponderance of the evidence, 50% plus 1, 1. That the loss was due to a fire of incendiary origin. 2. That the insured had an opportunity to set the fire. and 3. That he had a motive to do so. It matters not whether the jury determines that the insured personally set the fire or did so through the acts of another. The key is that the insured caused the fire to be set. In the Ninth Circuit explicitly rejected the notion that a defense of arson can be defeated by a failure to prove that the insured himself was the incendiarist. Close quote. Evidence of prior claims, whether fraudulent or not, are admissible to show motive, intent, means, and opportunity to commit insurance fraud. When plaintiffs make claim under the Florida Civil Remedies for Criminal Practices Act, which provides that any person who proves by clear and convincing evidence that he or she has been injured by reason of any violation of the provisions of the statute shall have a cause of action for threefold the actual damages sustained, and in any such action is entitled to minimum damages in the amount of $200. This includes insurance fraud, as it is defined in Section 817.234 of the Florida Statutes. In Didona v. State Farm Mutual, a 1999 decision of a New York appellate court, the court employed the clear and convincing standard in conformance with insurance fraud cases in New York. Nevada provides both statutory and common law remedies to check insurance fraud. Moreover, punitive damages were available under Nevada law if a jury were to find clear and convincing evidence of fraud or misrepresentation. Insurers also were able to rely on the statutory fraud provisions when they were victims of fraud. RICO, or Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Acts, can be applied in harmony with the state's regulation of insurance fraud. This video was adapted from my book, Zelma on Insurance Claims, Part 110, Third Edition, which is now available as a Kindle book, a paperback, and a hardcover from Amazon.com and is the completion of the treatise Zelma on Insurance Claims, now all ten volumes of which are in a third edition, fully updated and cleaned up and made easier to read. If you found this video to be of interest to you or your colleagues, please pass it on. It's free. And please also subscribe to my YouTube channel, my Rumble channel, 
and click on the like and the rumble buttons as you do and also subscribe to my blog my substack publications and my publications on locals.com thank you for your attention